0: long as a white man does it, it's all right. A black man is supposed to have no feelings. But when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent, and love his enemy. No matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, <laughs> then he's an extremist. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Liberated Minds show. We're your host. I'm Kay. Got brother James and a brother Wale. Uh, the gang is back together again. And today is episode 31. This is a special uh, episode that is near and dear to us all. Um, seeing as February 21st was not too long ago, maybe about a week and a half to two weeks ago. So um, we wanted to touch on that that very important date. And for those who who aren't familiar with it, that's the assassination date of the brother, late great Malcolm X. And so today we wanna go over his legacy Uh, in chronological order. We will try to stay in that order. So we'll just be reviewing the great legacy and impact that he had set here on his time. So. I'll give that back to you, James.
2: Well, we're going to start with Wale. We're going to go through the legacy in chronological order.
3: Yeah, what's going on, brothers? How y'all doing tonight?
2: Good, good, man. How you doing?
3: All right, all right. Proud to be here. Good to see you, brothers, again. Um, I think that uh, it's really important to talk about, when talking about uh, Malcolm X, it's important to gather his background. All, of the, all the things and the nuances that created the ingredients, which is the real estate of who he is today, that we know and we continue to follow and study. If we look at him from face value, in which the country projected him to be, we would definitely see that it was a one-sided image. If you notice, they won't show any photographs of him with his family, which denotes him as a loving father. It denotes him as a teacher, denotes him as a family man. It won't show these type of characteristics because they show one side of that three-sided coin. And that three-sided coin is the prejudice towards anyone of, uh, that's Black or African or whichever uh, identity we decide to use. But for sake of conversation, we will say Black. Anyone that's Black that's projecting these type of images that he was projecting, which is positivity and independence, such as the Honorable Marcus Garvey in the early 1920s we're talking about. Um, they will put a negative, a negative light on him. So that's why I think it's good to actually illuminate some of the things that he's done within the 13 and a half to 14 years that he was on this planet as far as doing his work for the black people as far as in the Nation of Islam and a year and a half that he was out of the Nation of Islam before his murder. I would definitely like to start about, uh, start talking about certain things that has affected him in his childhood throughout his life that molded who he is, as I said. If you look at the first incident that happens in his life of tragedy, it was in 1929. It was the firebombing of his, uh, of his house when he was a child and also, you know, the murder of his father, things like that. He has no role model, you know, and his father was a avid follower of the Honorable Marcus Garvey. That being said, those same teachings was delivered to his family, his brothers and sisters and others throughout, you know, uh, where he lived during that time, which is in Lansing, Michigan. In 1934, his mother, Louise Little, was, uh, she basically died after being, uh, admitted into a mental institution for a number of years. This is the result of after her father, or excuse me, her husband, Earl Little, that was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. Those things alone, taking everything away from Malcolm, the uh, authority, that parenting, all of those qualities that he never had. After that, he was sent to a boarding home and she actually died outside the um, institution that she was committed to when she made her transition. In 1940, this is when uh, Malcolm actually moved to Boston. This was his first exposure to Boston in a completely different type of lifestyle living. Uh, different type of black people he was seeing that were successful, that lived in different parts of the city. Some of them were integrated to a certain extent with the white community and were seen as the upp- uppity or upper-class Negroes in which they call them in uh, different areas of Boston like uh, Roxbury and also they called it The Hill. And those areas, that's when he discovered you know, gambling, playing pool. Although he never played, that's how he met his best friend Shorty. In 1943, that's when he started to hang out in a place called Small's Paradise. When he decided when he got a job um, as a washing dishes on a train. As he got that job, he went across um, Small's Paradise as a recommendation to one of his most valued friends, in which all of you probably know who he is. His name is Red Fox. At the time, he was called Chicago Red. And they all recommended that that's a place that he should never miss once he makes it to Harlem. And that's where he ended up going, and that's where he was working until he was fired. And after he was fired, um, that's when he went to his criminal element, as far as breaking homes and as far as uh, robbing people, being a gambler, a pimp, all types of different things of that nature. That's what resulted him to end up going to prison in 1946 in Charleston's, Charleston's, Charleston Town, Penitentiary, I believe it's called. Most people know that he was sentenced to ten, a 10-year ten stint to run concurrently because of the multiple robberies and things that he was doing. However, he only spent six and a half years in prison. That's in three different uh, institutions, and they were all in Massachusetts. He was released from prison in 1952, and upon re- being released from prison, he automatically moved straight to Detroit after receiving the lessons and the teachings of uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, through his younger brother, which was named Reginald. That was the closest person to him that introduced him to those teachings. In 1953, he was named assistant minister of Temple Number 1 in Detroit. That's the first place that he taught. And he took the job reluctantly because he wanted to take the most minute position as a way to help the nation of Islam prosper during that time. In in, uh, 1955, oh, excuse me, before that, as his travels began going throughout the country, spreading the word of the, uh, the teaching of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and also building new temples, they also purchased him a car, the Nation of Islam. Malcolm was so dedicated to teaching the people throughout the country, not just on the East Coast. When they purchased the car, it was a Plymouth. It had zero miles on it. In five months, he put 30,000 miles on that car. Travel and teaching. That's the dedication. 1955 was the first time he actually heard the rumor of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad having um, issues in his personal life in reference to infidelities. A monumental monumental moment about him is in 1959 when a brother named uh, Johnson Henson was beaten by police officers in Harlem, New York. He was beaten so severely they had to put a steel plate in his head to have his skull fuse again meaning come back together because the skull was basically kicked in. They stormed the police station, Um, not stormed, they actually went to the police station, Malcolm and a bunch of other Nation of Islam members, and they demanded that he got um, good health care and transferred to the hospital. 1963 was when the uh, infidelities really hit rock bottom, and it came out as far as in the papers, not just in uh, Harlem papers, but throughout the country, Chicago and other places as well. That's when Malcolm decided to make a pilgrimage to Africa and Asia, which a lot of people may not know, but he actually spent 18 weeks throughout Asia and Africa. Hence, he was poisoned in Kemet. He was in the hospital for about six months. That's little to be known about that. And during that time when he was in Africa, he met several phenomenal different leaders. Number one, he went, he met President Azikwe, which is the president of Nigeria at the time. He also met... Uh, he met him at the University of Ibadan, which is in Ibadan, uh, Nigeria. He also uh, met with a student to the Nigerian Muslim Student Association, uh, which the university was founded in 1964, and it, gained, and it became an independent university in 1963. That's three years after uh, Nigeria's independence, October 1st, 1960. Upon meeting with those students, the students were so resound about what he was saying and his message coming from as a so-called American Muslim and coming to Africa, teaching those same teachings, they actually made him a member of that student union. And his ID number was the letter M-138. And they also gave him a Yoruba name. His Yoruba name is Omowale, spelled O-M-O-W-A-L-E, and it means the sun has come home or the sun has returned home. So these are many things that people should know about Malcolm. And when he returned back to America, um, that was May May 21st, 1964. He visited uh, Liberia, Senegal, Algeria, Egypt, better known as Kemet, Morocco, Ghana, and Nigeria. When he was in Ghana, he actually met with the Honorable Kwame Nkrumah. When he was in, uh, also he visited Congo as well, where he met the Honorable Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister and president of that country when it was called the, Dominica, uh, the, the Dominican Republic of the Congo, I believe it's called. That's what it's called, correct?
1: Then, um, mm-hmm.
3: That's correct, right? Okay. Also, and, um, and it gets at least to the point where where he was assassinated. And um, this is the point where it's a lot of controversy and conspiracy around the assassination of Malcolm X, which happened in 1965, May 21st, May, May 21st 1965. That's a, that's a date that uh has uh excuse me, February 21st, 1965. I apologize. He was born May 19th, 1925. I apologize about that. But anyway, that was the point where it was going towards the end of his life, where a lot of people, which was assumed to be the nation of Islam, was trying to assassinate him, but others thought it was the government, other more powerful nations. That leading up to the bomb of his house, the bombing of his house in uh, February 13th, 1965, and that was um, on the same street, in the same home that the Nation of Islam owned in the Queens, New York. And um, ultimately, he appeared on a show that he debated with Gordon Hall. Um, and I believe it was a sister named Evie Rich. I believe she was there. And it was about the Nation of Islam and why he split. And three days later, which was on a Sunday, February 21st, 1965, in the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, New York, which I had the pleasure of visiting, um, he was assassinated on a Sunday around three o'clock. And the curious, the, the peculiar thing about that, there was a hospital directly across the street called Columbia Pres- Presbyterian Hospital. When they uh, released the footage, excuse me, the information that Malcolm was shot, they didn't send a cot, they didn't send a, anything over to assist. So the Muslim brothers and sisters actually dragged him across the street on a gurney, which all of you probably have seen that, um, that photograph in those videos as well. So this is leading up to the assassination, I think is important to show just these small little monumental things within chronological order to show the stress and the dedication that he dealt with simultaneously up until his assassination. So I think when people look at him, they will look at him from a different perspective as far as things that he was doing and things that weren't being shown, courtesy of the news, which we know who that's controlled by, which is Europeans, so they won't show things like this they would show things that they conjured and put out there. So I think that's important to notice before we even go into the assassination.
0: My reason for believing in extremism, intelligently directed extremism, extremism in defense of liberty, extremism in quest of justice is because I firmly believe in my heart that the day that the black man takes an uncompromising step and realizes that he's within his rights, when his own freedom is being jeopardized to use any means necessary to bring about his freedom or put a halt to that injustice, I don't think he'll be by himself. I live in America where there are only 22 million blacks against probably 160 million whites. One of the reasons that I am in no way reluctant or hesitant to do whatever is necessary to see that black people do something to protect themselves. I honestly believe that the day that they do, many whites will have more respect for them and that there will be more whites on their side than are now on their side with these little wishy-washy, love thy, love thy enemy uh, approach that they've been using up to now. And if I'm wrong, then you are racialists. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Without some good information, man. Definitely appreciate you driving that knowledge. Um, even before we jump into the um assassination part of this episode, um, I just want to ask a general question, just because you, you did such a great job, the legacy.
3: Um, what does brother Malcolm mean to you? Well, Brother Malcolm means to me, he's the sign and it's one of the signs and one of the symbolisms of our um of our great ancestors that decided to um, dedicate himself for the betterment of our people, being where he came from, from the same communities that we come from, and a lot, in many cases, a lot worse. The brother was born in 1925. Let's think about how the world was during that time. You know, we think Donald Trump is doing something uh, in pre- previously, not in comparison to what he was dealing with. So the fact that he was able to stand up and uplift people and maintain that patience in which the area that he came from and the elements that he was in, a pimp, you know, um, robbery, you know, gambling, all types of different things, steering women to um, white men and and black men as well. These things that he were doing that were in a negative light of him, it propelled me to see that where one begins is not the same thing as where the race or the walk ends. So it gave me a point of, of evolutionary thinking, of evolving from the, the community that I, that I grew up in and didn't allow it to make me. So I see him as a monumental hero and a role model for all men in many aspects, referring to his dedication to family, education, community, and culture. Um, that was
2: great. What
1: about you, Kay? Yeah, I mean, that was well put, Wale. Um, Basically, what he means to me is, um, it, let me tell you. see, I can't follow up behind that, Wale. Come on. <laughs> but basically, it's like, um, just something I straight to the point that his, his autobiography was one of the first um, autobiographies I read as a child, and it really changed my mindset. As far as um, being appreciative of what he put on the line to just to make the, the small, he put so much on the line, it, it, made, it made little change, but um, it's still enough to be appreciated and, and you understand like um, what he sacrificed to, to make that. I always felt as though he's been respected in the community um, uh, in um, I'm dealing with black Americans specifically. I mean, we can go internationally, but, um, he's always been respected, um, uh, that people like to compare him, you know, just based upon the, the time at the time, the, the era, um, with, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, but they had two different approaches to the same, um, the same disease that plagued this country. And I think his, I mean, if, if it were a choice for me, I would have been a follower of his just based on the fact that I feel his teachings were, his teachings were more in in connection on a Pan-African approach. And I feel as though that whole turn the other cheek, um, like he said, I'm going to run out of cheeks. You can't keep um, turning the other cheek. So I just feel as though, he was a no nonsense person, very knowledgeable. He, he could, if you've seen any of his interviews, that's one person you didn't wanna try and outwit because you lose every time. So, um, I just he just means he's a big inspiration as far as uh, he's he's actually my favorite person in history. That's hands down. That's not even close to anyone. So, um, like I said, he, he's an inspiration. He's one of my Heroes, he's what do they say? He's on my Mount Rushmore. So that's what he missed
2: to me. I agree with both of you, brothers. Um y'all, y'all, y'all drop so many, you know, facts and everything that I agree with, so I can only add like a few points. Um I see him as one of the greatest examples of change that I I've ever had the honor of even seeing because I didn't get to witness it live, but that I got to see because of books and footage and everything and just knowing excuse me, just knowing his history and where he came from and then where he, you know, got to be and the power and the impact that he has to the point that he's still inspiring people to this day. Like that that's major. There's not too many people that make that change and they make it so monumental that almost 50, no, over 50 years after they've um, passed away that they're still inspiring people. Like, that, that's just
3: amazing. So... The thing about the- Malcolm... That I really appreciate is the way that he was able to reach people. Now, some people are one-dimensional speakers. Malcolm had a way where he could reach so many people, and he went to travel to many different places, as Kunle said earlier, actually to learn as much as possible and be able to be determined to teach. When he met Patrice Lumumba, the Honorable Patrice Lumumba from the Congo, he said, I won't hesitate for a minute to say that Patrice, these, these African brothers have broadened my scope tremendously. He said, Patrice Lumumba is the most innovative man he's ever met in his life. That was in 1964, he said that. So and we also must note that he met, this is not to say one is greater than the other, but that Pan-African philosophy that was given to him by East Indian by the name of Depento, when Malcolm was focusing on nationalism, he changed his infrastructure as far as his thought process to go from nationalism to pan-Africanism because nationalism in the way Malcolm was describing it, it was good in America. But remember when Malcolm said, we need a Mao Mao in reference to Kenya with mm-hmm. great Jomo Kenyatta in which he met, you know, when they were fighting against the Kukuyu and they were going against each other. So he said the greatest the greatest accomplishment was to go back home and create a philosophy a doctrine called pan-african not create but continue excuse me continue pan-africanism so it unites africans all over the world on one page in the same book we're talking about barbados the place the first place where africans were kidnapped from and brought to america the place they call america when they kidnapped when they kidnapped us human trafficked and enslaved us they were sent to Barbados first and then they ended up here so he's talking about Barbados he's talking about all of the West Indies period he's talking about Haiti he's talking about you know um all those locations and he wanted to unify those things people don't know that about him that he met with the president and the king of uh Kemet which was named at the time his name was um uh was president uh President, I think it was President Nasser, I believe his name was President Nasser, you know, all these different presidents he met, and he was he made a a, a total alliance with them. Mm-hmm. Dr. King went to Africa as well. You know, he went to India as well to study and learn some of the philosophies from Mahatas Gandhi, even though Mahatas Gandhi studied the works of Akhenaten, which is an African from Kemet, one of the rulers. So the fact that he went back to this origin, his aboriginal, you know. To get the, the the philosophy and to bring it back. The first one to make those connections. It's amazing. I admire that. Yeah, definitely. He made two trips. The first time he went to Africa and Asia. And then he went back two months later. And that's when he stayed for about nine months. Learning. Making a connection.
2: Wow, That's powerful. They say you never stop learning. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, first question is, um, in the uh, Who Killed Malcolm X documentary, which I believe was a well-constructed um, documentary, um, do you believe that there is um, any merit to like the Newark
3: um, mosque story? I believe that 110%, because Malcolm's own words, I'm not saying they're the sole ones, but when he was talking about the roughest um, temples that he was, uh, you know, helping establish or establishing within himself, mm-hmm. he talked about the Newark mosque, he talked about the Chicago mosque, he talked about how a lot of their brothers that were forced into the life of crime because of the society, not because they chose to do that on career day. So but you know they were forced to live this lifestyle to um survive during that time. Of course a lot of them were coming out of prison or formerly uh, incarcerated. You can't be a black man in America and not be incarcerated during that time or now or have a high probability of it. Mm. So a lot of them were really really rough and totally street. They weren't totally out of it yet. They, it was relatively new to them at that time. So I think that um some the gentlemen they were talking about were involved with that. And several people actually um collaborated at cooperated that, excuse me. What about you,
1: Cod? Sorry, brothers. I, I still haven't had time to finish that, so I'm I'm learning right now with y'all at time. So I, uh,
2: yeah, basically um just based on the documentary, uh, I definitely um, believe there's a lot of merit to it. That these um, brothers from this mosque, they were like, they were probably already heated, and they had the fuel poured on them and the match lit, mm-hmm. and they went in there just ready, ready to like you know take Brother Malcolm out. And according to the documentary. Um, just to get, give you a little light, shed a little light on it for you, Um The Newark Mosque had, um, this is where the guy with the shotgun, William Bradley. Yeah, William Bradley, this is where his mosque was. And it was like a a public secret that was like hidden in Newark for, for all the years until uh, William Bradley passed away. Yeah. So that pretty much the kill the person that did the kill shot on Brother Malcolm was able to live a life and was even held as a hero in in this town. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I definitely um believe that it's true. But like uh, Wally said, I don't think that they act. They definitely didn't act alone.
3: Definitely not. Malcolm said it himself. He said, "I taught." I, I I trained a Nation of Islam. I did personally. I know what they can do and what they can't do. That's his words. A quote. Now, William Bradley is actually seen with the shotgun in the footage walking past the screen that's yep. a, that's one thing we have to look when, we, when they slowed the screen down he crossed tucking a shotgun under his coat not even just that photo there's other photos with him as well the brother who was in jail for it uh who did i believe he did 25 years am i right james thomas hager him yeah 25 30 years exactly when they locked him up and the other gentleman that i can't uh remember his name i think his his let he changed his islamic name is something aziz i forget his first name you know what i'm talking about right brother I can't Those remember. two gentlemen spent many decades and years, many decades in prison for something they didn't do. When they were locked up, they were snatched out of bed. All the neighbors, their own neighbors, left and right and across the street, verified. They were taken out in their pajamas,
2: yeah. you know. And they uh, they they like lost their families and stuff. Exactly. And it it was, it was it was crazy because like this. I go back to it, like, this town, it was an open secret. It was like they knew, and they were, like, openly protecting this guy, knowing what he did, and he was, like, a mentor. He was allowed to live, like, his life.
3: Like, he did nothing wrong. Opened up a boxing gym, was seen as a community hero. You know, everybody showed him praise. at all types of different. Mind you, the community knows that he was the one that was responsible, uh, one of the key figures responsible for the murder of our brother, of his own brother, you know? But during that time, like I said, the Nation of Islam, I'm not saying the entire Nation of Islam, but those, I'm not going to say Nation of Islam in general. Those gentlemen that were in that, those guys that were in that mosque were responsible in many ways leading up to the assassination to Malcolm X. Did you hear, either one of you hear about that, uh, the deathbed confession By one of the um, undercover agents. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. I heard about that. I believe that 2,000%. I I believe that.
2: Yeah, I do too. That's actually um, the next thing I was going to ask about. Um, Like you just stated, um, it was a deathbed confession by, I believe, one of the FBI agents, and now the family of, Malcolm X are demanding that the investigation is reopened. Um, do you believe that they will reopen this case? And if they do, do you see any chance that this investigation will find that the FBI and NYPD are actually guilty?
3: They already have. They are uh, to answer your question, brother. They already have reopened it. That's one, two. And uh, when they find them guilty, they're going to do the same thing they did when they found Dr. King. The brothers, the people, excuse me, the people who murdered Dr. King, they were found guilty in civil court and they actually won a couple million because of that. And that mm-hmm. happened, I think it was fairly recent. It was 2000 or something, I believe.
2: 1999.
3: 1999, yeah. 1999. Thank you for that correction. Appreciate that. Yeah. So I believe they're going to find this because just like uh, Honorable Minister Farrakhan has been saying for 50 years, You know, he had nothing to do with it, but he did admit that he may have created the atmosphere for it to happen by what he was saying verbally and the Muhammad Speaks newspaper that Malcolm himself started, I believe in 1952, I believe. So I think all those things added up. And I think what that gentleman was saying, that's a part of um, FBI that was used to infiltrate and conspire a plot to so-called blow up the... um, Empire, I mean, excuse me, the Statue of Liberty, so those brothers who were Malcolm's chief security officers will be locked up before February 21st, 1965, so he won't have those key security guards on the door. That's why they weren't there. That's what's in the deathbed confession. They talk about that. The gentleman talks about that in detail. Now, people are wondering, they wonder, why did he wait until his deathbed? Let's be serious about this. If a person betrayed... Someone of this stature, you know, and the world loved him. A lot of people loved him and he portrayed his own brother. How can one live with that? And not say something about it when they're about to make their transition or set it up when they die, that will come out. Because the scrutiny that that person will have to endure, they will probably kill themselves after going through that. Mm -hmm. So why not live one's life and then release it?
2: Yeah, that definitely makes sense. What about you, Kay? You got something to add to it?
1: Yeah, if you don't mind repeating the, uh, the question.
2: Um, basically, just asking, do you see any chance that um, this reopened investigation will actually find the FBI and NYPD guilty of conspiring to assassinate Brother Malcolm?
1: Right, I, th- I think it'll play out the way Wally just described as far as Civilly, um, basically they'll be, they'll be held liable. You know, the family will be able to sue, but um, there's nothing criminally, and I I, I think that's I think that's the the the, um, the biggest issue I have with it is that anytime there's any you know stemming back to police brutality, these entities get off the hook criminally. And they just have taxpayer dollars you know going out to solve their issues and and it's very frustrating so i mean how how can we expect like what do we expect fifty years right? We're talking fifty years ago what 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 is it gonna change historically what's it gonna do honestly like this should it wasn't even like this all came out around the 21st of February and it was low on the radar. It wasn't even like breaking news or anything because it's like people are just saying, you know what, that happened 50 years ago. And, and truth be told, if you put time behind anything, the, the severity of it is going to be dampened. And I feel as though, what, his grandchildren, like what, how would, what would that money benefit? Like what 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 could his family do with that money in his honor, <clears throat> in his honor at this point? I just feel as though it's like too little, too late. Honestly, is 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 very much so. And I agree with you as far as uh what brother Wiley said as far as someone living with that. That man couldn't he he couldn't transition without. Without that being known, without letting that off. And at the same time, I also think it, it could have been an intimidation thing as far as not necessarily his safety, but the safety of his family. We're talking the FBI. You know what I mean? Hmm. We know they we know they suicide people at the end of the day. Hmm. So I just it's just it's just a trip that we can be when I say we, I'm just talking skin folk. Because if they were truly we, their mentality would be different. So it's easier to infiltrate just based off of being skin folk, man. And anyone can be bought. And it's a shame that people don't look at the, the bigger picture. Yeah. We're not all playing the, um, we're playing different games. We're not even on the same team most of the time. So, I mean, I just feel it's too little too late just to sum it up
2: yeah I definitely agree um yeah I would say like reopening an investigation so the government can investigate itself like it's its point is because you know criminally nothing's gonna happen, and they don't mind giving us some money, mhm- because if they give up the money, yeah right back, they don't like usually. The records of what they're admitting to exactly won't come out. There'll be some sort of, oh, this might be what happened because they actually paid. But the actual records of what's what surrounds it, most likely is not gonna be released. So it's like, while it's good that this was brought to the light. I do not I s I don't I don't know. I don't I'm on the fence with it because I'm like, yeah, the family will get money, but what else? Like what what is it gonna really do? Because for many, many years, many people have already kind of figured this out that mm-hmm. the FBI and the NYPD has something to do with it too.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well as far as his uh his family getting money and stuff like that, you know, um uh not that part, excuse me. Um the intimidation that Kunle was talking about. I know it was intimidation involved, you know. If you look at Dr. King, his home was firebombed as well multiple times. If you look at his mother, his mother was assassinated. do you, do you know that? His mother was killed, you know, and that was nineteen seventy four or nineteen seventy five, I think. She was shot she was shot by playing a uh the piano in church. Yep. You know. And I believe that's when they were hiring investigators to figure out, you know, how Dr. King actually died. Not from the shot, but they were investigating that, you know, how he died. You know, did the bullet cause his death or did something else? And she ended up being murdered in church. So Hmm. I believe that was a a tactical move. Yeah. 1974, it was, I believe. Yeah, I remember hearing
2: about that. And that's what, yeah, that's what won the King family the case in 99. Because he survived the bullet. Mm-hmm. And they came in spitting on him and suffocating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, damn. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, all these years when you've learned this uh, Black history in school, the only thing you find out is that he was shot and died. You didn't, you didn't hear about the heinous stuff that happened at the hospital.
3: Well... The aim is to not teach that because if one were to teach that, it would give us a light bulb on top of our heads of who we're dealing with. Oh, but yeah, to, yeah, yeah.
2: But, but, yeah, Go ahead, continue. My, my, no, I was just saying, like, no, yeah, I, I, yeah, It's definitely like the education system is kind is kind of designed to keep you kind of uh, willfully blind, I guess. Like, you know, walk around with your eyes wide shut, where you think you know more than what you what you actually know. So,
3: yeah, I, I agree with you. I didn't mean
1: to interrupt you though.
3: No, no, it's cool. I just want to let you go ahead. I thought you were, you know, had a concept you wanted to say.
1: But. I believe. Well, that's you know the reason that they teach that fake history is just to to keep to keep us patriotic. In a sense, it's like yeah, we did wrong, but we're doing better now. We we recognize our mistakes, but you had one of the biggest cover ups in history. To where you had the your government killing its citizens, killing uh, freedom fighters. And then anytime there is an instance of racism, we're told racism doesn't exist. Oh, you guys are playing the race card. And I just, I just, it's, it's very, it's an insult. It's an insult all the way around. I just feel as though like, his whole, this whole God confessing it was just confirmation that we didn't necessarily need, but like you said, we knew for years. Mm -hmm. So We we know anytime someone is fighting for the emancipation of Africans in the United States, they will not live and die a natural death. That's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. And like I said, what they will do is hire someone that looks like us. Just like in, um, just like with Fred Hampton, you get somebody to infiltrate. And then what you do is you blame, say, look, it's that black on black crime we keep speaking about. Just like if we bring it up into current time, just like with Nipsey Hussle, he had a, he had a whole, um, Meeting set up with the police department. With this whole program, is how he was going to do it. It's going to create jobs in the community. He had that set up for the upcoming Monday, and look at what happened. Then they said, "Oh, this must have been some gang-related um, retaliation." Well, we all know that's BS. They 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 think people are stupid. Therefore, because of the senseless deaths we have going on in most cities today over over BS. So they figure any time there's any type of death surrounding a figure, you can always amount it to Black people just can't get along with one another. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I think that it wouldn't be... I think in some ways one could look at it as being too late, too little, too late. I I agree with that to a certain extent. But I still think that for the generations under us, the stuff that we're learning and we're saying that it's a bit too late for us, the youth, the ones who don't have a brick between their ears, courtesy of these institutions of indoctrination, so-called education, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: once that's removed, they will be able to distinguish the truth from the tale because we fought to get through it. So as these things are coming to the forefront, it's up to them to grab the baton and not fall for the pit hole, the pitfalls and the pitholes that we were forced to fall for under the indoctrination that we're under within this country. And then being within this country as well, the things that we brought to light as our ancestors has done, as Garvey has done, you know, as um, Malcolm has done, as Dr. King has done, you know, as many many others has done, as uh, um, Dr. Francis Cress welsing the, the phenomenal writer and psychiatrist, the beautiful work she's done. Once we pick up on their, on their accomplishments, we can take them to another level. So I think it is too little, too late to a certain extent, but I think there's a lot of room for evolution within the youth that's coming behind us.
2: Yeah, that's a great point Now I didn't even think about. It. Mm. Yeah, it definitely matters because you see how they change in education all the time. Textbooks, they change in slavery to um, what did what did they call it?
1: Indentured servitude. Yeah,
2: they, they changed. They they made it like it was a it was a a choice. Like they they follow Kanye's doctrine. Yeah. Like yeah, slavery was a choice. No, you can't do that because words matter. Yep.
3: Yeah, and 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 the whole philosophy behind that when people say when he said. It's not to be about Kanye, but a lot of people that think that way when they say it was a choice, I would have done this, I would have done that. How about the police officer that hopped out the car three seconds later, killing Tamir Rice, and he had a, he had a yellow toy gun with an orange tip to it. Find a gun that looks that color. Anyway, um, and murdered him. Imagine during the, time, during the time of those 50s and 60s, how serious it was where the fire department, police officers... Anyone that had a uniform that wasn't a so-called Negro at the time advocated for the punishment and violence and plunder of our people. So it's easy to say, I would do this back then. For example, people could say, if I were in enslavement during that time, I would do this. Yes, that's because you know how the world is now, not how it was then, where they had no vision of being free and walking down the street and doing what they wanted to do in the 1800s, 1700s, and, and so on, going backwards. So it's easier to say things like that. So the more we learn about this, the more it gives us a decisive decision on which one we want to follow.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely. All right. So, the, um, I got one more question. It's it's a hypothetical. Um, just just have have fun with it because it's, it's all it's. I think it's, it'll lead to some great discussion. But. Um, Had Brother Malcolm survived this assassination attempt, what do you see that would have turned out different in the civil rights era and beyond?
3: I think he would have been Tupac before Tupac. Hmm. Even though he was already Tupac before Tupac. The reason why I say that is because if he was, if Brother Malcolm were to survive those shots that would have put him on deity status to certain people because for him to send people to come and murder him and him being shot 16 plus times, majority in the legs because of projection of where he was laying, you know, he survived that. And he actually revealed the rumored envelope that was in his breast pocket that revealed the people that was coming to murder him that day. Mm -hmm. Now, if he were able to reveal that, that Dr. Betty Shabazz took out his pocket when they were on the stage with him, And he was able to talk about those type of things and also able to prove, because remember, a lot of people, namely Mike Wallace, was saying that he's claiming people are coming to kill him, claiming people are taking attempts on his life. They don't know about when he was on the show called Hotline. When, when When he walked out of the studio, there were a bunch of Nation of Islam members that not only tried to attack him, the police was there for Malcolm's protection because they had to take him off of a flight. Because the Nation of Islam attacked him before he got on that flight. When they landed in New York, there were more Nation of Islam members there waiting outside the show called Hotline. When he came out, they not only attacked, tried to attack him, they attacked the police to get to him and injured them. Notice that was never in the news. The reason why it's not in the news is because it makes a person question, hmm, why are they trying to do this and fight the police to get to him? So it's more, it more likely to think that they actually were going to murder him. Mm-hmm. So that's why we don't hear about these things. And I think it is important that um, we know that if he survived those shots, he would have came back 30 times stronger because he would have had the protection. Not just the OAAU, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, he would have had the protection of international protection. You know, Mm -hmm. many people talked about the the finances that that he had access to. To start his new nation. That's why he said the nation knew if they left me alone, if they left me alone long enough to get my feet planted, they wouldn't be able to stop me. That's why they won't leave me alone. Mm-hmm. He said Elijah Muhammad could stop this with the wave of a finger and it will stop right away. But at the time, that's when he was making a transition and thinking to say that it wasn't just the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. So if he survived those shots, he I, I firmly believe, almost single handedly he would have changed the mind frame and the entire economic of black people. Because mm. Dr. King went in 68 after that. that's when Dr. King came to a revelation in his own church in which Malcolm was in his church when he was given the, uh when he w- they were reading the letters called the, uh, the Birmingham letters. When Dr. King was locked up, Malcolm was in his church sitting next to his wife, the Honorable Coretta Scott King. He was sitting next to her, and he was telling her that he didn't come to cause trouble. He came to try to help in any way possible. That's when he gave the house Negro, field Negro speech that you can find on YouTube. And afterwards, when Dr. King got out, Malcolm was it sad, well, they met at the uh, courthouse. Dr. King said, in many cases, that speech, I, that dream I had has turned into a nightmare. And I feel that I have integrated my people into a burning building. He said that himself. I didn't write that. Mm-hmm. so if he survived and those two were to come together as Malcolm said I think he was talking to Lyndon Johnson the president that took over after Kennedy was assassinated mm-hmm. he said he said uh, how did Malcolm put it he said I think y'all should give Dr. King what he's asking for because we support that and if he fails there's many people waiting to take over so it's basically give him what he wants or else I'm coming mm-hmm. <laughs> so if he survived that He would have single-handedly, as far as the movement here and abroad, would have changed the mind frame of Africans in Africa with their perception of Africans in America. They call African-Americans or so-called Black people. He started that with his lecture at the Oxford debate in 1964. Mm. That's when he owned everyone's ears internationally. That's what I think about him. Wow. What about you, Mm. Kirk?
1: I've often, I've often thought about this. Um, what what could have been if he survived? Um, one thing that we do know is that his outlook changed um, drastically once he left the the nation. Um, so his approach. I think the his approach definitely would have it, it would have it would have garnered like there's so many people that would have fell in line I feel and it also would have prevented some of these so-called um civil rights leaders that we have today and that came immediately after him from even coming up because we we would have had a real one you know what I mean Mm-hmm. And I feel as though the the whole think about this if brother Malcolm survived imagine what he could have added that's if they even would have came into his ex- existence based upon how how this all would have played out but think about the direction even the Black Panthers would have gone in you know with his mentorship
2: you
1: mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Right so it's, it like I said it, I just think the we, like i said this they they knew what was coming. FBI knew what was coming, so they had they had to do what they did, and it, like I said, it was jeal- it was just pure jealousy from the nation of Islam, and it, like I said, I, I think about that all the time think about it all the time what if what if this brother lived would we have Al Sharpton out today would we have Jesse Jackson (laughs) you see what I'm saying Mm -hmm. and like like Wale said he was the basically the blueprint for Tupac what what how would he have indirectly changed the path of Tupac Shakur Ooh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's so many, there's so many, the, the outcome, the outcome of this brother lived, we, we just don't know how many things he would have affected. So it, it's, yeah, that, that's one, that one's big. That's big. So, yeah, I just think of not necessarily just him, but who he, who he had influence over, you know, who looked up to him. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. I'll, I'll, that's the best I can answer that question. If you look at
3: 1966, when the Panthers started, the year after Brother Malcolm was assassinated,
1: mm-hmm. and
3: um, with the with, you know the people, the two gentlemen that started started, which is Bobby Sills, the Honorable Bobby Sills, and the Honorable Doctor Huey P. Newton. They forget to say Doctor Huey P. Newton, forgetting that he earned a PhD in social science. So let's put that on the record right there. And he also just named the street after him, Dr. Huey P. Newton in uh, West, o- I think it's North Oakland, they call it. Yeah, it's North Oakland. They have it. You know, it's Dr. Huey P. Newton. And they, they I'm proud they've done that. But anyway, more importantly, to this specific topic, being though those two gentlemen started that mass movement, mm-hmm. can you imagine, like you said, if they had Malcolm's mentorship? And they only went off the blueprint that he had after he left the nation. That's Mm -hmm. what a year, maybe a year and a half tops before he was murdered. So if he were there to be over those groups like SNCC, which some people know him as Stokely Carmichael, his African name is Kwame Ture. Mm -hmm. You know, he changed his name. And if he had that mentorship as he was working with Dr. King in reference to uh, Kwame Ture when he was working with Dr. King, SNCC. Uh, during that organization, hmm. just, just imagine the all the Angela Davises, everybody, the Kathleen Cleavers, the Elders Cleavers, the the uh, George Jacksons. I can go on and on and on. The, the honorable Mumia Abu Jamal, you know, I can go on. John Africa, I can go on and on and on. Yes. Just imagine if they were able to have conversations together. It's mm-hmm. like that conference they had in Africa. I think it was in Africa. I forget the year. Every nation was invited except for white nations. <laughs> you know what, what I'm talking about, Cunhae? Seriously, this is real. I forget the name of it. No, I know. Uh, it was like the Berlin Conference in reverse.
1: Right, I remember. Yeah.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah. Um, adding to what y'all was talking about. Um, yeah, like, I think if he would survive, right, think about this. Think about how many infiltrations he would have stopped because of his knowledge. So the infiltration into the Black Panthers, Fred Hampton probably could have avoided being assassinated and being infiltrated. You know what I'm saying? Like Mark Clark wouldn't have been killed. It, it would have like probably made it where those the different leaders would still be leaders. Nothing was from the inside skinfolk never was able to get in because brother Malcolm was here to let them know like don't do this don't do that he could get information because he was able to get information about who like brother Wiley said who was coming, was coming to kill him so if, if he can get that information he could have got the information too that would have prevented a lot of things from happening and then the Black Panthers could you imagine that like the Black Panthers across the country being under Brother Malcolm, like, can you just imagine that. And like, like uh, Kay said, like Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, they would have been like somewhere quiet. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be out here tra- acting like they for us, but they really like pawns of white supremacy. Like it, it wouldn't that wouldn't even been happening. And then if you think about, like I was saying, the influence on Tupac it goes back to his mom. His mom was a Black Panther, mm-hmm. so she would have been directly influenced. So then when she had a young Pac, Pac would have been influenced by Michael X directly as a child. Mm-hmm. So he was all he was already influenced on, influenced by him. I'd not even meet him. Can you imagine if he would have had conversations with him and grew up under his
3: tutelage directly? It would have been crazy. Just imagine. Because let's, let's not remember this, our honorable ancestor. When Malcolm went under the tutelage of the honorable Dr. Yusuf Bin yekinen which is the reason Malcolm went to Medina, it wasn't because of uh, Elijah Honorable Elijah Muhammad sent him there. It wasn't because of that. He went went there because Dr. Ben advised him to go to find out the true origin of Islam. And we all know Dr. Ben is famous for breaking down the origin of of religions and illuminating the spirituality that they come from. So as he was teaching Malcolm that, and Malcolm went back and came back, then he went back and came back. If If he were to survive that, and Dr. Ben just made his transition in 2015. Just imagine all of these years of wisdom, Dr. Ben would have gave him, and Malcolm would have took it, taken it fifty thousand yards, miles further. Mm-hmm. Just imagine that with that world experience and knowledge, that library that Dr. Ben carried around and others, he was getting everyone together. That's why they couldn't let him last. Yeah,
2: definitely. Mm. they don't want that they don't they don't want you to wake, wake our people up and they don't want no talk about no economic freedom i think that if he were able to get
3: the honorable um muhammad ali to come with him i firmly believe leagues like the aba and all these other things they wouldn't have existed because black people wouldn't have decided to go there. They would have started their own league. Mm-hmm. Mm. NFL or any other sport, being it was that segregation thing, we would have started our own league. And let's be serious who wants to watch up any sport that doesn't have black people in it? Let's be real. Nobody. <laughs> I'm I'm just being honest Unless you want to see somebody jump over a now And do a, a layup or something like that We want to see the super fly athletics and the skill Let's be honest about this This is not being prejudiced, let be honest So a lot of people will already have had that stance That Greg Hodge, Craig Hodges had That stance that Kaepernick had the stance that um, uh, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf uh, had You know, those people mm-hmm. And others as well that I'm maybe forgetting this time Jalen Rose and people like that LeBron, people like that this would have happened back then, started with the great Muhammad Ali, the champion of the world who said, I'm the greatest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't want little, be- little, be- little black girls and little black boys saying, I'm the greatest. Would you? No. Nah. So here we have it. Because I think it puts, it puts the child, when they know the history and they know the value of these great ancestors that we're talking about, when they find the value in them, it, it takes a part of their personality and it becomes them because it, it, almost, it almost delivers a standard or a code that they should live by. Not a code individually, but a code as a people mm-hmm. collectively. So, removing those, uh, well, extracting those um, elements out of our community and our knowledge of self, it makes us an empty shell. So p- with it, it puts us in a driver's seat of our own destiny. Mm-hmm. So that's why they, they wouldn't allow these things to uh, continue with a person like Malcolm because he wouldn't sell out. He even said, "There's no, just because I'm not with the Nation of Islam, there's no one that can sick me on Elijah or the Nation of Islam. I'm nobody's pit bull.
1: Mm-hmm. A...
3: Those are his words, not mine. Powerful. All right, so
2: you know, we hope y'all learned a lot about um brother Malcolm. And we hope we also hope that you continue to do research and you know, continue to learn why he is such a great, great man and one of the greatest leaders that we've ever had. So um once again thank you for joining us for another episode of Liberated Mind Show. Um, you know, peace and love. We'll see you next time.
0: came up with what they call a civil rights bill in 1964, supposedly to solve our problem. And after the bill was signed, uh, three civil rights workers were murdered in cold blood. And the FBI uh, head, Hoover, admits that they know who did it. They've known ever since it happened and they've done nothing about it. Civil rights bill down the drain. No matter how many bills pass, black people in that country, where I'm from, still our lives are not worth two cents. And the government has shown its inability or either its unwillingness to do whatever is necessary to protect life and property where the black American is concerned. So my contention is that whenever a people come to the conclusion that the government which they have supported proves itself unwilling or proves itself unable to protect our lives and protect our property because we have the wrong color skin. We are not human beings unless we ourselves together and do whatever however whenever is necessary to see that our lives and our property is protected and I doubt that any person in here would refuse to do the same thing were he in the same position or I should say were he in the same condition step farther to see am i justified in this stand and i say i'm not speaking i'm speaking as a black man from america which is a racist society no matter how much you hear it talk about democracy it's as racist as south africa or as racist as portugal or as racist as any other racialist society on this on this earth the only difference between it and south africa south africa preaches separation and practices separation america preaches integration and practices segregation This is the only difference, they don't practice what they preach, whereas South Africa preaches and practices the same thing. I have more respect for a man who lets me know where he stands, even if he's wrong, than the one who comes up like an angel and is nothing but a devil. Another example is the Supreme Court desegregation decision that was handed down in 1954. This is a law. And this law, they have not been able to implement this law in New York City or in Boston or in uh, uh, Cleveland or Chicago or the northern cities. And my contention is that anytime you have a country, supposedly a democracy, supposedly the land of the free and the home of the brave, and it can't enforce laws even in the northern most cosmopolitan and progressive part of it, that will benefit a black man if those laws can't be enforced or that law can't be enforced how much heart do you think we will get when they pass some civil rights legislation which only involves more laws if they can't enforce this law they'll never enforce those laws, so my contention is that we are faced with a racialistic society, a society in which they are deceitful deceptive, and the only way we can bring about a change is to talk the kind of language, speak the language that they understand the racialists never understands a peaceful language. The racialist never understands the nonviolent language. The racialist, we have, he's spoken his language to us for 400 years. We have been the victim of his brutality. We are the ones who face his dogs that tear the flesh from our limbs only because we want to enforce the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones who have our skulls crushed, not by the Ku Klux Klan, but by policemen, only because we want to enforce what they call the Supreme Court decision. We are the ones upon whom water hoses are turned with pressure so hard that it rips the clothes from our backs. Not men, but the clothes from the backs of women and children. You've seen it yourself. Only because we want to enforce what they call the law. Well, anytime you live in a society supposedly based upon law, and it doesn't enforce its own law because the color of a man's skin happens to be wrong, then I say those people are justified to resort to any means necessary to bring about justice where the government can't give them justice. I don't believe in any form of unjustified extremism, but I believe that when a man is exercising extremism, a human being is exercising extremism in defense of liberty for human beings, it's no vice. And when one is moderate in the pursuit of justice, for human beings. I say he's a sinner. And I might add in my conclusion, in fact, America is one of the best examples when you read its history about extremism. Old Patrick Henry said, liberty or death, that's extreme. Very extreme. And I go for that. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who's who's in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, brown, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, a time when there's got to be a change. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change, and a better world has to be built, and the only way it's going to be built with, 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 is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone, don't care what color you are, as long as you wanna change this miserable condition that exists on this earth. Thank you.